John Barth has built his career, his life really, around his passion for great storytelling and for helping other people, as he puts it, reach the pinnacle of their audio dreams. You might not know his name, but he's been a key magic maker on many shows you almost certainly know, from Marketplace to the Moth Radio Hour. John is a host's producer, a talent recruiter, and coach with a finely honed ear, not just for a literal sound, but for what makes a brand and what enthralls an audience. Despite his many accomplishments, John does not stand on laurels. In our conversation, you'll hear compassion, humor, modesty, and a reference or two to dirty jokes. If you've ever wanted to understand the mystery of hosting and how to get better at it, this episode is for you. Meet the man behind the people, behind the mic, on this episode of Sound Judgment, where we investigate just what it takes to become a beloved podcast host by pulling apart one episode at a time together. I'm Elaine Appleton-Grant. John Farth, welcome to Sound Judgment. I am so glad you're here. It's so great to be here. Now, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about your life in radio, and especially, I want to talk about how you have found, mentored, and helped grow the careers of radio and podcast hosts that so many of us have heard of and admire. Now, if you're in the audio world and you haven't had the joy of meeting John Barth, I have to tell you, I'm going to embarrass you now, John, what people say about him. They say he knows so many people and knows so much about what makes great hosting and compelling shows. But more than that, this is the word that kept coming up whenever I mentioned your name, John. It's mensch. Everyone says you are just (laughs) such a nice, nice guy. And that is my experience of you. Now, on this show, typically I have podcast hosts on to dissect their own work with me. John's not a current podcast host. You can think of him the way I do, more of a guy who knows his way around and knows all the players, a guy who obsesses over what makes great storytelling and the voices that bring it alive. So today, we're going to talk about this journey that he's taken and what he does, which has taken him from local public radio stations to NPR, Audible, PRX, and we're going to dissect a few passages from shows hosted by people who John admires. But first, John, I got such a kick out of this. When I mentioned that I was going to do this show, you wrote to me and said, at PRX, we talked about hostiness all the time. And I just laughed out loud. I had never (laughs) heard this made up word. What is hostiness? You know, hostiness, uh, yeah, what is that word? Um, That's probably why we talked about it so often. You know, hostiness is kind of like finding the flavor of sugar, right? You know it when you taste it, you know it when you hear it, and it's a combination of very different factors. One is, you know, there's a likability uh, in someone's voice or style. Um, There's this innate sense that, ooh, I really like to spend more time with them. Um, And I think there's also this range of curiosity and joy and um, versatility that comes across when you encounter hostiness, but it's that compelling nature that if you saw them live on stage, you'd never want the show to end. 
What did you do at PRX and I don't know, maybe the other places where you worked that had you talking all the time about hostiness? Why? Well, that's a great question. Um, sometimes it was a matter of um, helping hosts or people making shows get better or helping hosts listen more closely to their own natural voice. And, you know, I think that a lot of people who you may not think of as natural hosts, if you work at it, you can actually find your own inner hostiness. Everybody behind a mic gets insecure at some point and they get a little bit lost and they don't really know, do I really still have it? Um, what is my sound again? And part of my job was to hold up the audio mirror and say, see, you do have that. Listen to that show. You know, anybody who uses their voice professionally, you want to get to a consistent sound. And so if a good host can hear what makes them sound good in front of an audience, you want to kind of like implant that sound in their head. And, you know, after a while, you know your own range and you even on an off day, you can work at it and you can pull that out. A lot of it was just helping talent be the very best talent they could be behind a mic. Give me an example, because I think that, you know, like like we were saying, it's kind of an ineffable quality. I remember one coaching session with a reporter who, when I sat down with her in the studio, she confessed to me that no one on her team and no one she'd ever worked with had ever coached her voice. She was a really good reporter, good producer, knew how to gather audio, and she didn't have a natural, compelling audio voice. And so we sat there for a while, and the first thing that I would do is I would just let her talk about the story, let her talk about her passions. And when people talk about their passions, they they automatically get a bigger range. You actually hear more color in their voice. And so then when it came to actually reading a script... We would do it again and again, and what I would listen for is not only just what any producer does, is where where does somebody stumble, where does the sentence not really work. Then I looked for moments of passion and how they wrote, and so some of it was just, again, holding up that mirror and focusing on something, and after a while, you do hear the joy come out, and it was like, okay, so let's do that again, but pause there, and take me back to that scene that you're describing and feel that in the in the sentence. And after we were done, I was so moved because she said to me, I can't believe how good I now sound in this story. Sometimes we just don't know what our own voice can do. And you need a little coach and another pair of ears to say, ooh, that really did work. Helping them to hear themselves is really, really important. Well, and you said something that I think is really, really important. And and frankly, what I do when I'm coaching people is I say, you know, let's let's this particular part is a scene, for instance. I want you to imagine that you're in that scene, or how do you feel when you think about that scene? Because it's very easy to get caught up for anybody. I mean, you know, I was I was a reporter. It's really easy to get really reedy and sort of newscastery and not think about what you're actually describing or saying or a place or a time where you're trying to get the listener to to feel that. That's right. And, you know, the other one is that we all, uh, when we start out in audio, are mimicking the people we admire. In the early days of PRX, I was worried because I started to hear everybody sounding like Ira Glass. 
So the same intonations, the same pausing, the same, you know, after a while it became a characterization and, you know, there's only one Ira Glass and Ira Glass sounds the way he does because he's Ira Glass. So I'd always say to people, you're not Ira Glass, you're you. And so let's find out the you. And, you know, most editors who work in audio, if they're good, I'm hoping what they do with a lot of their reporters or teams, you know, this is what I used to do at Marketplace. Before you read me the script, just tell me about the story yourself. Just talk to me about what it is you saw, what you felt, what stuck with you. And then when we would go through a script for the first read, I guarantee you they would be more lively than if they were just reading words, because I've already put them in the mood of kind of um, storytelling themselves without a script. So the goal is to certainly read the script, but your voice and style is loose enough that you can really bring some expression and life to it. There's nothing worse than sounding like Walter Cronkite with the forced intonation and forced pattern. Good hostiness is there's an authenticity that just comes with your own natural voice, but trying to find that natural voice and that tone is super important to get to. Some people never find it, but I think it always helps to have another set of ears to help you hear that. And a very keen set of ears. It's not It's not just sort of anybody, right? Uh, that's right. I mean, I, I'm sure like you and many people listening, you know, we've probably at this point listened to thousands of audio stories. And it's like looking at good art versus bad art. After a while, your eyes and your ears get attuned to a certain level of quality and uniqueness. And then you actually have an aural set of standards or values that you really hew toward. So even though we all have fans, you know, as listeners, oh, I like that host differently than this host. There's a reason we do that. It isn't just a matter of taste. I think it's also ears that have been trained to hear certain things that seem to really work. What you're making me think of, of course, is that good writers, particularly, say, novelists, read a lot. They've always read a lot. And you're right, John, I've, I've listened to thousands and thousands of audio stories. You've probably listened to tens of thousands of audio stories with the amount of the work that you've done in radio and, and in podcasting. Let's talk just a minute about your journey. So you started as a reporter, am I right? Yeah, I, I did a lot of reporting in graduate school at the University of Missouri. Um, everybody was terrible, me included. Uh, you make a lot of mistakes. And then my first radio job, I certainly made a lot of mistakes. And and then I was lucky enough to get hired um, as a reporter at WHYY in Philadelphia. It was a really amazing time. It was really an amazing internally competitive newsroom where people were not afraid to tell you if your work was good or really terrible. I had a um, unbelievably excellent news director and editor who had been a newspaper guy, but what he didn't know about audio, he certainly knew about news. And so, you know, I just relished every editing session with him, even if they were brutal, because over time, just like a good coach in a gym, you get better, you get stronger, and then you find the confidence to experiment a little bit and try things. And and that was a newsroom that encouraged that. And um, even in a news context, it was really, really great. For me, that was just amazing preparation going to help create Marketplace. Because um, when I went to Marketplace, I used to joke with Jim Russell, who was the executive producer, that I could hear a show in my head and 
over the, I don't know, six or seven years that I produced the show, I was always trying to get closer and closer to that sound. You want to hear a show, you want to hear a story, you want to hear a voice and say, can I get to that? If you don't have that audio vision in your head, it's, you're a little, I think you're a little bit lost. Then you're just putting stuff together. I find that so interesting. In fact, sometimes it's frustrating for me because I can hear a story in my head, but I'm working with other people and they're hearing a different story in their head. It's like, ah, you know, I have to let go of control a little bit. So at Marketplace, you were hiring hosts, right? You were going out and looking for new hosts and you found some great ones. Talk about that. Well, um, when I was there, we went through three different hosts. You know, when you're hiring a host, the host really does imprint uh, their own sound voice style on the show. So it actually begins to define the brand that you're creating. It took me a while to get to a host who embodied the sound that I heard from the show. And I worked the longest with David Brancaccio, who I think is just a remarkable talent. And um, so there was an editorial vision, but there also was primarily a sound vision. And I guess, I guess I owned that and it needed to be distinctive. I always imagined how the audience was listening to the show and the kind of listener I wanted to attract to the show. And so that had to be a certain sound. And so David embodies um, the willingness to pretty much do anything behind a mic to tell a story and enthrall an audience. He's a raconteur, and so a raconteur is a natural storyteller and just as compelling. Uh, he has incredible humor, and when I worked with him, our goal was to laugh uproariously before we went into the studio to do the live show. So we would tell a funny joke, a dirty joke. We would we would be really snarky in his office. But my job was to get him as a host, not only loosened up, but comfortable with a real range of emotion. So by the time that mic went on, he could really bring his full self to whatever he had to do in those 30 minutes. I mean, it was so much fun. It was great. It sounds like so much fun. You know, everybody's got different sort of hacks for, for getting ginned up either to do a live show or to do a taping. I'm going to have to remember that one. I've never thought about telling dirty jokes. That's great. Uh, you said something interesting. You said he was a, a natural storyteller. You know, I get this question kind of a lot. Is hosting something that you can learn or are you just born that way? Well, there, there are skills that you can master, but you can't create talent. Talent is innate, right? But that's okay. I mean, there are people who are at the limit of their talent, which is, you know, it could be, it could be a B in terms of talent, but their skills, their mastery of skill, um, their ability to perform um, is really, really high. And that's, of course, part of, I think, what this entire show will be looking at as I go forward with everybody. I think everybody has a different answer to that question, but it's part of what we're trying to figure out. Part of what I'm hoping to discover with different people is what right. what is it? Who can learn it? And maybe, you know, maybe not everybody can. I'm hoping that that's not really the case. You know, I, I think uh, hopefully a lot of effort makes a, a big difference. And I know it. I've seen it a lot. Can I give you an example? Um, anybody who produces a show should watch that uh, 80s movie broadcast news like 10 times. It is one of the best examples of um, someone who masters skill 
to overcome a lack of talent and ability, right? Uh, William Hurt, who plays the pretty boy uh, network news anchor, you know, Holly Hunter, his producer, is the one that gets him in a zone to actually perform at that level of skill. And so everyone knows he's not a very good news person. He's not very bright. In fact, he admits it in the movie. He knows all of his limitations. But other people recognize what he is capable of doing and what it takes to support him. You know, my dream consulting workshop would be how to create executive producers, because this is what you need to do a lot of times. Even the best host on a Monday is generally not in their best state of mind. They're tired like everybody else. And so how do you get somebody to perform either at the highest skill level or the highest talent level on a day when in their gut, they may not be really feeling it? That just takes a lot of support. It just does. I have to say, I absolutely love that idea. And if you decide to do a workshop on how to create a good executive producer, I am putting my hand up as a volunteer to work with you on that. Love to do that. I completely agree. Um, You know, it's sort of like directing theater and being a writer and being a cat herder and, you know, like everything all at once. People have no idea what producers really do. So speaking of producing, John, you know, you had this great run at Marketplace. It was a lot of fun. You worked with a friend of mine, David Brown, another wonderful host. And uh, eventually you wound up at Audible. Uh, So after Audible? After um, Audible, uh, that's when I went to PRX. And PRX was, it was really uh, two and a half to three people just getting started. They had just really launched the website and their technology and um, I was hired to essentially create the market for PRX to work. Explain what PRX was at the time and what it is now. Yeah, PRX was incredibly revolutionary. I'm a person attracted to startups. I love startups. I love that chaos and defining how something works. So PRX's claim to fame was that it made it possible for anyone in the world to upload their audio to an open site, prx.org, and then public radio stations could, quote, license that audio and download a broadcast quality file. So what this meant is that you could file and post audio from anywhere, and anyone who was a paid member of PRX could download that audio and put it on a radio station. It was absolutely disruptive. And so my job was to convince public radio stations to use PRX. And on the other side, it was my job to encourage producers, especially independent producers, to begin finding a way to get more people to hear their work through PRX. Ten years ago, I was a reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio, and um, and we would put our stories, as long as they had relevance beyond New Hampshire, we'd put them up on PRX. And every now and then somebody in, you know, Missouri would download it and play it on their station. And so so it really was very helpful. And it was really helpful to news directors who needed to fill some time like, oh, I need a I'm short one story and all things considered tonight. And, you know, what's out there? But now PRX may still do that, but also is a big podcast network. Yeah, PRX, um, like most media companies, faced the realization early on that as much as it could be a platform for other people's work, we had our own creative uh, nerve that needed to be uh, tickled a little bit. And so I was part of a team really pushing for us to develop more and better content. And so 
our first really big step in that direction was the Moth and the Moth Radio Hour. I was invited to a Moth performance in Boston. It blew me away. And I remember walking into the PRX office the next morning. I walked into Jake Shapiro's office, who was the then CEO, and I said, I found our first hit. It's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time, but this will be a massive hit. And Jake, being Jake, just said, yes. So it was not only trust, but it was an acknowledgement that he and I had worked together long enough and had enough very funny and sometimes drunken discussions. I think that he trusted my ears to know, yeah, this could probably do it. And it took a lot of lifting. The moth was great, and they stuck with us through lots of lots of work. And we worked with Jay Allison and his team at Atlantic Public Media. But it became, it's a massive hit. That show is iconic now in public radio. And beyond, well beyond public radio. It's amazing. And John, to know that you spotted it and were on that original team to develop it is just, it just warms my heart. And it, it just speaks to your love of storytelling and your good ear and, and all of that. We could have a whole episode talking just about The Moth. I do want to say The Moth knows probably more about hostiness than anyone. So if you think that storytelling is just getting somebody on a stage to tell their story into a mic, uh, you don't really appreciate what The Moth does to get to The Moth's sound. Their process is so respectful of finding not only the true story of the storyteller, but the voice of the storyteller and the hostiness of the storyteller. That is a wonderful segue into the second half of this episode. We're going to dive into talking a little bit about the work of hosts that you admire, John. You actually recommended that I listen to Mississippi Goddamn, which is a seven-part series that Al Letson, the host of the investigative podcast Reveal, also hosts. It's a, it is a Reveal series. I always like to acknowledge that as great as a host is, there's no great host, especially with a scripted podcast that doesn't have a really good team that is uh, equally involved, just less obvious. <laughs> Just less, yeah, they're not getting the attention. So uh, we'll, we'll have the names of, of the team in the credits as well. So as I said, you brought Reveal host Al Letson to my attention. Before I play the clip for you, tell me a little bit about Al and why you admire him as a host so much. You know, Al, first and foremost, is a performer. He is a multi-skilled, multifaceted creator. He's a playwright. He's a slam poet. He's an artist. He does comic strips. He's a screenwriter. He's a off-Broadway producer, off-Broadway actor. Al has done so many things with his life. He's a sponge for every one of those experiences. He's one of the funniest storytellers you'll ever meet. He's an incredible mimic. And that says to me that his ears are super attuned to voice and situations and styles and people. And like any good performer, he craves and lives off an audience. The audience is the oxygen that makes you aspire to something more. Al is very much that. And I think the the challenge for us when we began Reveal is that, you know, there was a lot of pressure to say, oh, you need a journalist to host that show. And while Al's journalism chops were really strong. They weren't traditional. 
But first and foremost, what we needed for that show was also a voice and a host who would essentially help us redefine what investigative reporting would sound like. And that's why Al was just a real natural choice for that job. Great. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Let me just give a, a little introduction to Mississippi Goddamn. It reveals years-long investigation into the death of Billy Joe Johnson, an 18-year-old black man, a football star in a small town in Mississippi. It's absolutely gripping. And from a hosting perspective, there is so much to talk about. Here's how he starts this seven-part series. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson, and the year is 1991. I'm a senior in high school, living in a little town outside Jacksonville, Florida. A middle-class black family in a mostly white neighborhood. On the surface, this is the American dream. A big house, corner lot, manicured lawn, and a pool. But if you know what to look for you can see the cracks. Confederate flags are everywhere you turn. Neighbors who refuse to talk to you because of your blackness and the occasional racial slur you hear in the wind are spray-painted on the street. Racial intimidation, both large and small, was just a part of life. So much so you don't even think or reflect on it. You just bury it deep so you can live. And then one day... The oppression you've been living with is reflected at you, and you just can't deny it anymore. This introduction works for me in so many ways, and I'm curious about your reaction to it. The two big things that jump out for me are that the storytelling pulls me in immediately. He tells us, hey, we're not in today, we're in 1991. Then he describes something very personal and relatable, his neighborhood. And there is something about the quality of his voice that is like, I don't know, like a bedtime story. What are you about to tell me? I'm on that street seeing the big house. I love the scene setting. And then the other thing, and we'll get to it in a second, is that it seems to me that it's a controversial decision to start a series about an investigation of a murder by talking about yourself, the reporter. What's the first thing that strikes you about this clip? Well, yeah, it's it's telling that he he begins with himself. And I think that um, Al has lived with this story, this investigation, for a long, long time. So he's providing you right off the bat with a personal context of the storyteller. But he's doing it in a way that is so compelling, it just pulls you right in. I would think that most listeners to Reveal, so many people, you know, grew up in a suburban neighborhood. That's what he's describing. But he's also describing the underlying ick of racism that was present everywhere. The other thing that jumped out to me right away is I could follow the sentences and how they're constructed. They are written like a rap poem. Short phrase, short phrase, short phrase, short phrase, short phrase. And it has a rhythm to it. As I was listening to this, I was thought, oh, those remind me of the steady beats in a sidewalk. Just go back and listen to the rhythm of each sentence. Here's a beat to it. Al has an innate sense of sound. And what he's doing is he's getting you in the mood and the music, the original music, 
reinforces that beat, beat, beat pattern. I just love how this is. Look, there's many ways to get into a story about racism. It can be didactic and beat it over your head. It can be way too subtle and doesn't really respect the horror of it. Um, But what Al is doing is actually he is walking you through his life and his neighborhood as a way to get you familiar with his voice and tone because we're going to go into some really dark stuff. So I, I just think there are a lot of considerations in the way this was set up. That was about a minute long. And you can pull apart a minute long introduction, a minute long passage. And there's so much going on as a host, as a producer, as a writer. He happens to be the writer also, which helps. That makes it a little bit easier. It's harder to write for somebody else's voice. It is somewhat controversial, or it could be for a traditionalist to say, you are making yourself the subject of this story. Yes? Well, in traditional journalism, you're not supposed to be part of that story. You're the author, but you are not the subject or the focus, right? I want to play another clip for you that really gets at a big question that I have and a, and a change of heart that I've had. Before we get to that, though, we should talk about race because there is no way we can separate race from this story or really any story in America. I'm black, grew up in the South, and that has definitely shaped my worldview. And I'm white. I was born in Scotland, moved to the United States when I was young. I lived outside D.C., New York, and Philadelphia. And all of that shapes the way I see things. In this series, we feel like it's important to talk about that up front because race is tied so tightly to this story. Not because we're going to Mississippi, but because the story takes place in America. What's happening there is that um, this is still very early in the first episode, and Al is introducing his investigative partner, JJ. What's your response to that clip, John? Well, it's um, supremely honest, and it's reinforcing the power of point of view and experience, right? So when I said before that, you know, most journalists are trained to remove themselves from the story, well, you know, that's a false construct. You never really do. It's your eyes, your ears, your notes. It's what you see. And then It's also layered by all the experiences that help you see what you see or what you notice or what you miss. So, you know, it's a false, um, it's a false neutrality because we're all individual and he's acknowledging all of that right up front. So whether the story is about race, it could just be about gender. It could be about anything We're multi-layered, complicated people bringing in the most negative way our own biases, but in the most neutral way just our full, limited selves to how we see a story. And it's rare to hear this acknowledged so plainly, but it really does need to happen that way, especially in a story like this. I was very struck by it. And the reason is because, you know, I, like you, grew up as a traditional journalist where, you know, and even back in school, all of us at one time were told not to use the word I in anything we wrote. And I think one of the One of the great things, particularly about podcasts now, but I think it's in radio now to some extent, is that that's changing, is that we want to have someone take us on their journey through this. We want to know their reasons for being there and how they feel. 
And I loved this clip because I no longer believe there is such a thing as objectivity. I just don't. We are, as, as they were demonstrating, there is absolutely something called a fact. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But objectivity in the, in the old sense, that we don't bring our lived experience or identity or ge- geography to it, we can't help it. It's just who we are. What do you think? Well, there are objective facts. We live in an age where we're being told that's not true, but there are. And so there are objective facts. The challenge for any of us who are putting together stories or certainly reporting is that in the heat of any one moment or any one story, we may not be privy to all of the facts. It's always the most frustrating aspect of reporting is that you always know what you're leaving out. You always know you're probably missing a lot. And it's just the limitations of being human. And it's really, really difficult. I could talk about Mississippi goddamn all day. And I hope that maybe you will help me persuade Al Letson to come on the show. But let's spend just a tiny bit of time talking about a couple more hosts of scripted podcasts. Uh, Because one scripted podcast and one host is not at all like the other. We tend to put things in buckets, right? So you told me about Whitney Cummings, the host of a Wondery show called Bunga Bunga. Now, this is a host you don't know. You're admiring her as a listener only. Here is a bit of the trailer. There's this charismatic multimillionaire businessman. He got a start in real estate with a loan from his father, and he owes his fortune and fame to television. He's had his share of controversies, lawsuits, tax fraud, comments about women, and he's sensitive about his hair. And then one day, he makes an announcement. He's going to run for office. People laugh. His opponents call him an idiot, but he wins. Okay, you've got someone in mind, right? Now, move that whole story. Italy and multiply it by a hundred. From Wondery, the makers of Dirty John, Dr. Death, and The Shrink Next Door comes. How do you say it, Silvio? Bunga, bunga. Bunga, bunga. This is the story of the rise of the brashest. What is it about Whitney Cummings that works for you, John? Break that apart for me a little. Well, There are lots of ways to talk about Berlusconi, but she starts with um, making something that you may not know more familiar. So making the Trump comparison is a doorway in, you know, her voice, can I say it? It's a little bit suggestive and a little bit dirty, right? There's a little bit of a wink, wink, and you can't tell the story of Berlusconi without acknowledging what an utterly corrupt, odious, creepy guy he is. And so just the whole tone that she's taking is setting you up for the oily corruption that we're going to be hearing. And she's funny about it because, you know, you look at somebody like Berlusconi and you're like, what a freaking train wreck this guy is. And so everything about her hosting, it is not straightforward, but boy, is it authentic to the story we're going to hear. I mean, she sets the mood, she sets the tone. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant too. And and I believe she is an actor. Actor and comedian. Yes, that's right. And you can hear that. You can hear that she is finding this pretty humorous. And I like that. Yeah. Almost the yeah. perfect host for this podcast, I would say. So there's the match too between the host and the podcast. You know, one can be perfect 
And then that same host can be terrible for another podcast. In fact, let's move to a different show real quickly. Sabrina Tavernisi. She is a new-ish host on the New York Times The Daily. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is drying up, creating a bowl of toxic dust that threatens to poison the air in one of the nation's fastest-growing metro areas. Today, my colleague Christopher Flavel on the struggle to avert that catastrophe. Why did you recommend Sabrina Tavernisi to me? I really like her voice, but um, I just want to have everybody just really listen to the scripting. The scripting of the open to the daily follows a pattern. And when I heard that script, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to imagine Michael Barbaro reading this, and I could. So the way that it's written is absolutely written to both her voice and to Barbaro's voice. She nails the critical words in each phrase. It is, I wouldn't say it's a perfect script, but it is perfect for the sound that she's trying to establish. So you know exactly what the story is going to be about, what is critical in this story. She just boom, boom, boom. She also has a just a really friendly but credible voice. And so Sabrina Tabernisi is multilingual. And sometimes I think that people with a facility for other languages know the range and style of their voice maybe better than some other people do because they've had to manipulate their brain and their vocal cords and their intonations in more than one culture. And when you do that, you really have to explore what your voice sounds like. And so what I hear in that open is a compelling sound, but it also has a real range of emotion to it. How could you not want to listen to that story, regardless of what the subject is? Right, right, right. You listen for rhythm and music. I'm hearing that. And yeah. and and I think that's a piece of it all. You are on your own now, John, as a recruiter in this business, and some of your time developing content. Yes, I, I recruit for talent for clients inside of public media and outside of public media. And, you know, this is an age where talent is very much in the driver's seat. So it's tricky because um, anyone with a modicum of talent really does have their pick. And then on the other side is I'm involved in the broad area of content development, which can be anything from listening to somebody's podcast work and providing very, very detailed feedback or helping somebody with a vision around podcasting help them pull together a production team and the documentation and how to talk to funders or how to talk to sponsors, helping them find distributors. Um, So I, you know, I'm carrying lots of different baggage to help somebody get to the pinnacle of what their audio dream is. And that's, that's my job. I love that. Help somebody get to the pinnacle of their audio dream. I love that. So what's going on when it comes to the need for talent, particularly hosting talent? Look, my my personal opinion is that podcasting has both opened the door to lots of unusual uh, talent or skilled people, but in the course of that, I think sometimes we've lost a sense of what really great hosting is. This is going to be a heretical comment, but I don't think everybody can be a host. Hosting is more than just putting your own voice out. Again, you always have to think about the audience, and there are lots of people who really don't care about the audience. They just want a big audience, but they're not really thinking about 
how does what I say, how I say it, how I say it in this moment versus another moment, how do I think that might be landing? And um, what's my job to really enthrall an audience to come back for the next episode or the next 10? And that has to be a very, very conscious effort. And that's, that's part of what it means to be hosty. Yeah, I, I despair. I just hear a lot of voices that are, they're fine. They're okay behind a mic. But like everyone else, I'm looking for uh, I'm looking for the blue M&M, you know, the, ooh, that really stands out. Yeah, you're, you're looking for the star. You're looking for the special voice. Yeah. But in every artistic endeavor, that's what we're looking for. We're not, we're not so enthralled by copies. We're enthralled by originals. Real quick, lightning round speed questions. What's the one thing about hosting you wish you had known, say, 10, 15 years ago, whenever, that you now know? Uh, practice and warm up. Spend a lot of time working on your voice. Before you get behind that mic, warm it up, yell, sing, yodel, laugh, cry, but um, really, really get your emotion into your voice. Who's your dream guest for sound judgment? I have two. One would be Robert McNeil, who used to host the PBS NewsHour. I worked with him as a host on a documentary, and I was blown away by his skill as a host. It's just stunning. And then I guess I would say probably Terry Gross, because I think that she knows the quality of her own hosting, and she can talk about it, but she's not somebody who obsesses over it. She knows who Terry Gross needs to sound like. I hope to have both of them on. John Barth, I cannot thank you enough. This has been such a delight. We won't let people in on all of our technical problems, but we solved them together, which just goes to show that he is a mensch. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been so fun being here. At the end of every episode, I try to give you just a few of the many takeaways from these conversations. Here are a few from today. You can find all 10 in the show notes. One, what is hostiness? It's an ineffable quality, to be sure, but it encompasses curiosity, likability, versatility, and that feeling that if you saw the host on stage, you'd never want the show to end. Two, we all want authenticity, a natural sound. But what does that mean? First of all, if you catch yourself mimicking Ira Glass or, God forbid, Walter Cronkite, shake that off. You need to sound like you, but a little better, with a full range of emotion. That's hard. What helps? A producer who, like John, will encourage you to feel the emotions of the story you're telling, not just read the words on a page. It always helps to have a coach with a finely tuned ear. Three, a host comes to define the brand of a show, or anything else that relies on audio, I might add. John starts a new podcast or radio show with an editorial vision, that's the content, and a sound vision, a distinctive one that will attract the audience for whom the show is designed. Thanks for listening to Episode 2 of Sound Judgment. Please take a moment to rate and review us on your listening app, and better yet, share the show with a friend personally or on social media. Tag us with the hashtag GreatHost. We need your help to grow this brand new show. Every single one of you matters. Do you have your own dream guest for Sound Judgment? Write to us at allies at podcastallies. 
or tweet me at Elaine A. Grant and tell us who it is and why. Sound Judgment is produced by me, Elaine Appleton Grant. Sound design by Andrew Perella. Our gorgeous cover art is by Sarah Edgel. Project management and all the things by the inimitable Tina Basir. I'm so excited about the next episode. Just in time for the midterms, it's Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers of the hit show Pantsuit Politics. They talk about what it takes to be good co-hosts for each other and for their enormous community of devoted listeners. See you soon. Music